just making sure touch base and how's everything going? What can I do to help? What do you need? That's all you really need to do. You know, that's really all you need to do. Again, I, it goes back to our cultural issue with death and dying. I think some people, they don't, they're just like my dad. They don't want to talk about it because they're afraid it's going to somehow come on them. Well, guess what? We're going to all die at some point. It's going to happen to every single one of us. And I just, I guess if there's any message I could leave you with, it's deal with it. Just deal with it. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Living Well podcast. I'm Stephanie May Potter, and I'm here with my co-host, Marnie Dachis-Marmet. We created the Art of Living Well podcast to empower you to live your happiest, healthiest, and most authentic life. Each week, we will bring you inspiring and motivating conversations covering health and wellness topics, including fitness, mindset, food, travel, product reviews, and strategies from a variety of experts, including our own bank of knowledge. We are excited to educate, motivate, and inspire you to change the way you perceive health and discover your art of living well. Get ready to feel inspired. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Art of Living Well podcast. Before we dive into our episode, I just want to make a quick shout out for our seven-day summer liver detox, which is kicking off this Sunday, June 11th. If you're local, you can still sign up and join us and get your kit and start on time. And if you are out of town, but you really do want to join, you can start a few days late and we will keep all of our materials open for you. This is such a supportive and amazing community, and it really gives you a chance to take your health to the next level. You can reduce your toxic load and your bloating, increase your energy, improve digestion in just one week. We have tons of alumni that do it with us quite often. Um, You really learn to tune into your own body's needs and you walk away with this like feeling of accomplishment and really this better understanding of your own body. So not too late to sign up. The link is in the show notes, or you can go to our website, theartoflivingwell.us, and we really look forward to having you join us. And now we are so honored and excited to welcome Pat Miles, who is one of Minneapolis region's premier television news anchors and radio talk show hosts. Pat anchored the 5 to 6 p.m. newscasts on CARE TV, And she developed a Pat Miles special using her writing and interview prowess to tell the stories of notable Minnesotans. She left TV news in 2001, and she fulfilled a lifelong dream of becoming the host of the Pat Miles Show weekday mornings on WCCO Radio. She is a role model for women in the industry. She has received numerous honors for her work in broadcasting and in the community, including the National Television Academy's Silver Circle Award. Today, we are having Pat on the show to talk about her new book. She's the author of Before All is Said and Done, and it's a book that's really a roadmap to navigate the practicalities of death while experiencing shock, loss, and Pat um, tells us on the show today about her personal experience with her husband and how he died from an abrupt and short illness. And Pat found herself with a plate full of legal problems that she had never anticipated. And so she talks about her shock and her grief, 
you know, and the loss of someone and how it's not really, you don't create a state of mind for navigating all those challenges that follow the unexpected death. And so her book really confronts this challenging topic head on where you're planning for one's death. And we dive into it quite a bit in this episode. And it's such an important conversation We know that many people dance around this topic or are uncomfortable talking about their wishes for, you know, what what death and after death look like. But Pat really, this book really shares a ton of advice for widowed persons from attorneys and doctors and financial advisors and so many other experts. And it's such a powerful conversation. And so we're just so happy to welcome Pat here today. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Good Health Saunas. I have had my Good Health Sauna for over a year now. And you guys, I love it so much. From the moment of purchase to the delivery and setup, Good Health Sauna staff, they've been absolutely amazing. They've answered all my questions. They did a great job with the setup. And I have started this routine where I'm working out in the morning, I'm taking a sauna, I'm showering, I'm refreshed, and I feel great for the day. And I just feel relaxed during the day. I'm sleeping better at night. And I feel like I'm really adding to my overall health and happiness. And I'm also removing toxins from my body. And I feel amazing. Infrared saunas produce penetrating heat to help you sweat and heal your body from the inside. Sweating on a regular basis in your good health sauna can help you feel rejuvenated. There are so many health benefits of regular infrared sauna use that include detoxification, immune system support, muscle repair, chronic pain relief, relaxation, deeper sleep, and so much more. I've been using my sauna now regularly for the last several weeks and love how relaxed I feel, especially when I do it in the evening as part of my routine. It really helps me unwind from the day and improve my sleep. So why not bring the benefits and convenience of the sauna experience into your home with a commercial grade Good Health Sauna? Good Health Sauna has three stores, one at the Mall of America in Minnesota and two in Wisconsin, in Appleton and Waukesha, but they ship anywhere in the U.S. For more information on the various sizes and options and for your special offer for all of our listeners, head on over to their website, www.goodhealthsaunas with an S, and mention the Art of Living Well podcast. Hi, Pat. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I got your contact info from my uncle, Ronnie, who was an old friend of Bucky's. And he approached me about six months ago and he was telling me all about your book. And he was like, you need to contact her and have her on your podcast. And I filed it away in the back of my mind. And then my mom, Elaine, who you may or may not know, heard you speak. I don't know if it was on a podcast or on a on TV or something all about your book. And she called me and she's like, oh my gosh, you have to reach out to her. And <laughs> anyway, so here we are today. And I just finished reading your book um, before all is said and done. And I was so tearful reading so many parts of your book. It was so powerful. And I feel like it's such an important conversation. And it's a topic that's rarely addressed. So I'm so thankful that you wrote this book and that we're able to take part in sharing it 
with the world. And before we dive into this conversation, one thing we love to ask our guests is, can you share with us one of your non-negotiables for the start of each of your days? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I I so appreciate it. And thank you to my friends who have helped me spread the word because I do think it's an important message. A non-negotiable for the start of my day, <laughs> a cup of coffee, number one. <laughs> and then I just like to check out uh, what's going on outside. I'm a big fan of nature. So, and I'm fortunate to in the winter live in Arizona which right now is absolutely gorgeous, blooming. All of the cactus are blooming and the brittle bush, which makes everybody sneeze and cough is blooming, but it is really gorgeous. So those are my two non-negotiables. Nice. So Pat, everyone has a story and we'd love for you to briefly share with our listeners your background in journalism and of course being a top news anchor and then how you came to write this book. Uh, Well, I started as a young kid, really. I mean, I was like uh, 12 years old when I decided I wanted to be a journalist, if you can believe it. I I loved writing. And um, I grew up in a small town in southeast Missouri, and I was the teen editor of the local newspaper. And then from there, I went on to the University of Missouri, which um, just fortunately had a great journalism school. So I always knew what I wanted to do. I never dreamed that I would end up on television, because at the time I was growing up, there were not many women on TV. In fact, I think the only woman uh, was Barbara Walters, who at the time was on the Today Show. So I sort of, you know, assumed I would be a newspaper reporter, which I was for a long time. And then I assumed maybe I could do radio, which I did for a long time. And then I just happened to be a woman at the time that they started hiring women. So I started my career in Aspen, Colorado, as the director of the radio station there. And from there, I went to Denver and worked in television. And from Denver, I went to Minneapolis. And that's where I stayed. I had visions of going on to the network, but I ended up getting married and raising a family and falling in love with uh, Minnesota. So that's really been my home uh, since I was 28 years old. And I had just a really wonderful experience there. My goal when I started was that I did not want to be fired. Almost everyone I knew in broadcasting got fired. I mean, whether you were great or you weren't, you ended up getting fired at some point from that job. So my goal was not to get fired and I never got fired. So um, I ended up quitting a few jobs, but I never got fired. So that um, for me was the pinnacle of success. Wow. What a great story in an era, like you said, where there weren't a lot of female broadcasters. It sounds like you were really a pioneer in this space. And the fact that you moved around for all these different opportunities, so inspiring for for a lot of people even today. You know, I hear people say that and I don't I don't actually think of myself as a pioneer, but I suppose in a way I was because there were not a lot of women. I mean, I remember practicing. There was a woman on the radio at the time when I was young. Her name was Bettina Gregory. And if you're old as I am, you might remember her, but she was a very well-known radio newscaster. And I used to record her, her broadcast and then try to talk like she talked um, <laughs> so, so that I could get a job on radio. So, um, so I suppose in a way I was a pioneer in that regard. 
But um, you asked me about, I think about Meaty Bucky. Is that correct? Well, we asked you how you came to write the book. Oh, how I came to write the book. Well, you know, I, I came to write the book because I lost my husband. He died of pancreatic cancer and he was a very, very healthy man. He was, um, had been a professional athlete. He exercised every day. He ate well. He didn't drink. He had a 32 inch waist. He did a four minute plank every morning. (laughs) Wow. We were not worried about Bucky dying. His father lived to be 101. Um, In fact, he was way more worried about me dying than I was worried about him dying. And I just assumed, you know, he will outlive me by 25 years. We were on a cruise with my two daughters and he started feeling tired and constipated, which is a weird symptom, right? So we just said, well, when we get back, we'll go get some medication and check in at the hospital. And he went to the Mayo Clinic where he had an executive physical every year for the last 50 years. And he came home with a stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis and died in three months, exactly three months. I remember Googling pancreatic cancer and it said the average lifespan is three months, which I couldn't, I couldn't uh, digest that. I couldn't comprehend it and neither could Bucky. And so we just... We just didn't really deal with the fact that he was going to die. And I think we live in a culture that really doesn't deal with the fact that we all come with an expiration date. We don't want to talk about dying. We don't want to think about dying. We don't want to prepare for dying. We prepare for everything else in our lives, but we don't prepare for that event. And so Bucky and I, as I say in my book, we were set for life. We were not set for death. And following his death, I was consumed with problems, issues. It it was nightmarish. And at the very time that I was dealing with all these really important issues, I was in what I called in my book, the grim fog of grief, which means half your brain is not working. I mean, I would have meetings with people and I wouldn't remember it the next day. I would have conversations and I wouldn't recall them the next day. And so I made a lot of mistakes. I trusted a lot of the wrong people. I hired professionals who I didn't know and didn't, um, and they didn't know me. I did not have what I call trusted advisors in place. And so it ended up being extraordinarily difficult, emotionally painful, incredibly expensive. And I woke up after two years of this and I was so angry. I was just, why did this have to happen? Why were we this unprepared? Why were we this stupid that we didn't talk about account numbers, passwords, passcodes for the phone, investments, loan? I mean, I wasn't even on the utility bill. I tried to get the utility people to talk to me and they wouldn't because I wasn't on the bill. And this went on for two years. I was sending out death certificates and I was on hold on the telephone trying to get through to whoever it may be that I had that particular day uh, facing a problem with. So I got so angry that I thought I've got to make sure other people don't go through what I just went through. If I can help, I wanted to, and I'm not a Pollyanna, trust me, but I really wanted to help other people. And so I started talking to other people. 
And it was during COVID. So I was lucky because people were home and answering the phone. And I started doing interviews with other widows and widowers. And then I started doing interviews with experts, accountants, attorneys, estate attorneys, uh, death doulas, grief counselors. I talked to everybody I could to get as much information as I could about this process and how you avoid going through the issues that I faced. And as it turned out, there was not one person I talked to that didn't face issues. Issues with money, issues with stepchildren, issues with illness, issues with grief. Everybody faced some sort of problem. So it was illuminating for me in so many ways. I mean, I used my background as a journalist to do these interviews, and I I don't like to think of myself as an expert in death and dying, but at this point, I probably am. I mean, I I've we covered so many different topics in the book, as as you know, since you read it. But, you know, military deaths and suicide and dementia and illness. And so there there are just so many facets to all this. And, and what I have found is that people are receptive to getting this information. You know, they um, and I think it's for two reasons. I think the baby boomers have finally come to the conclusion that we are possibly going to die at some point. You know, as it turns out, 100 percent of us are going to die <laughs> and we don't get to decide when and we don't get to decide who goes first. But I think we finally come to that conclusion. And so why not prepare for it? Why not prepare as much as you prepare for a wedding or a birth or sending a kid to college? Why not prepare for this very big event in your family's life? Because you will save them so much trouble, pain, sorrow. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm so sorry for your loss and for everything you went through, because that that just I can't even imagine like that's so fast and it gut wrenching, like when I hear and I, you know, have read about your story and I know that he was, you know, the love of your life. And I, so I, I mean, I could cry just thinking about it and I, I really feel for what you went through. And as I think about, you know, everything you're saying, why do you think there's such a reluctance in our society to talk about death and dying in general? Because we don't want to die. <laughs> I mean, you know, I grew up in a in a family where my father was a World War II veteran and he never talked about dying. He he thought that if he talked about dying, death and dying, it was going to make it happen sooner. I mean, I think he had spent so much time as a young man. He was a prisoner of war in Germany trying to stay alive that the, the mere mention of, of death and dying was just not something he was willing to deal with. And I think so many of us feel the same way. I mean, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. We get up expecting the sun to rise every morning, right? We get up every morning expecting that we're going to get up the next morning. And when it doesn't happen, when somebody doesn't come home, when somebody doesn't wake up, no matter if you knew they were sick, no matter if you knew that they had a terminal diagnosis, you still are in shock. You cannot believe that this actually that the sun actually didn't come up, that the person actually didn't wake up. It, it's hard to, to, um, to comprehend that for us. And what I have found for myself personally, because I have now prepared for my death, 
I have made sure that my two daughters will not go through what I went through. And I have found it's like any other fear. Once you face it, once you deal with it, once you prepare for it, you are far less afraid. I have so much more peace in my soul as a result of preparing for this. I feel relieved. It's, it's, it's actually fairly strange because I've always been terrified of dying. I think most of us are. I mean, who wants to die, right? But it is part of, as one of the death doulas said to me, we, it's part of the two sacred bookends of life. You have birth and you have death. And they're both sacred bookends. And we accept the one and prepare for it and rejoice in it, but we don't want to deal with the other. And I'm here to tell you that, at least for me personally, dealing with that other bookend has really brought me a lot of peace. This is so powerful. This is such a you know an important conversation. And the fact that you used all of your the tragedy that you went through to help others is so commendable and you're right. And I, you know, recently I've had a few people that not super close to me, but in my circles that have passed away very un- all unexpectedly, some, you know, young with young men with kids and it's gotten me, it, I've been reflecting quite a bit on it. And I hear you, if you have, if you can like somehow establish this sense of peace, you can go about this preparation that you've outlined in the book. And I just think, you know, thinking of the people that lose individuals and loved ones very suddenly, wouldn't it be so much better to have all this done now? You know, hopefully you don't need it for many, many years, but then if they do get a diagnosis like your husband did, and you only have three months to live, you can focus on enjoying those days, those three months and not be worried about what's going to come next. Mm -hmm. You know, when I, when I first came up with the uh, idea to write this book, it was my intention to call it the widow's web. But then when I started writing the book and researching, I realized this is not just about widows. This is Uh a book for everyone. And Uh I don't mean everyone my age. I mean everyone. There are young widows that I talk to. Some of them are in the book in their 30s, didn't have a will, didn't have a trust, didn't even contemplate um, the fact that they might die or their husband might die. One young woman, her husband was out clearing you know, trees at their cabin and a tree fell on him and killed him instantly. Um, She had three very young children, another young widow. Her husband was a doctor and they had talked about doing a will and a trust, but we'll do it next week. We'll do it next year. We'll do it next month. And he died of COVID. And so it's so important for young people, even though you don't think about dying when you're young. I mean, I know I didn't, but it's important for young people, especially young people with children, Mm -hmm. um, because it's important to make sure that if you don't come home, you know that those children or child is going to be taken care of the way you want them to be. And, And that brings in one of the chapters of my book on an intention letter. You know, it's, it, it, you leave behind a letter so that you make sure people know what it is you wanted, especially in the case of young young children. My daughter just had a baby. Well, after I wrote this book, she and her husband now have a will and a trust. They have a plan and they've written an intention letter. So if they don't come home one day, that baby will, they know exactly who will take care of that baby and how they want that baby raised. 
And even though we don't like to think about the fact that we might not come home to a child, I mean, it happened to my sister. She was 32 when she died. She had a three-year-old. But she, there was no intention letter. There was no instruction. There was no, here's what I want for, for this child. Because we didn't think about that. She didn't think about that. And all I'm saying is, the more you plan and prepare and communicate, the better off you are. And the more you leave your family and loved ones behind with just the ability to grieve your loss and not have to worry about all the problems. I call it the trail of tears. They don't have to walk that trail of tears if you are prepared. Yeah. I mean, it makes so much sense. I thinking about the letter of intention, like that seems like something that everybody should do. What does something like that look like? That's a separate document from like a will it's more of like a personal paper that you're writing, just describing, you know, in reference to children or in reference to anything. Like, what do you? It, it was the idea of a financial planner who I interviewed for my book, and I thought it was a, remarkable. And and everybody has connected to it. Let me give you an example because we're we're in Minnesota, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people in Minnesota have cabins up north, and dad dies. And now the cabin is left to the children. And Janie wants to sell the cabin and Johnny wants to keep it. Mm-hmm. And they start arguing about what dad would have wanted. And Janie says, well, this is what I think dad would have wanted. And Johnny says, no, this is what I think dad would have wanted. And they start fighting and they split. And that relationship gets very complicated between two siblings who are grieving the death of their father anyway. And trust me, things become very complicated when you're grieving and you're angry you've lost somebody who you think you can't live without. If dad leaves an intention letter, if there is a disagreement, Janie and Johnny, about that cabin, here's what I want. In one case, a friend of mine, he put in his intention letter, if Janie wants to keep it and Johnny wants to sell it, Johnny you can be bought out by Janie for X amount of money, but you can never use the cabin again. And that's what I want. And that's how I want it settled between wow. you two. Yeah. Yeah. So very um, direct, <laughs> very direct. I mean, you know, because then they know what dad wanted. Mm-hmm. When yes. You don't know what somebody wanted. I mean, I have a friend who hasn't spoken to her sister in 25 years because her sister took a bracelet that she was sure her mom would have wanted her to have. Oh, yeah. Now, you don't believe these things can happen, but they do happen. And it can all be avoided Avoided. by just saying, here's what I want if there is a disagreement. There's a chapter in my book called uh, Fighting Over Grandma's Pie Plate. Yeah. Well, they're not really yeah. fighting over grandma's pie plate. Right. They're fighting because they're probably family issues that have been going on for years and years and years. Uh-huh. But following the death of somebody, those issues can surface and bubble and boil and they can destroy family relationships. And so you want to avoid that. And it's yes. easy to do. It's called communication, communication, <laughs> communication and and pre- preparation. So you mentioned early on that you had some bad advice, you know, from experts in this field, but you've, you know, and you talk about this in the book, the importance of having the estate planning attorneys and other trusted advisors. So how can you find a trusted advisor and make sure that you're not getting 
screwed or just given you know bad information? And what are some things that that expert can do to well, I set up I call, every, all the I, legal documents before dying? Right. I call them trusted advisors. And when I say that, have these people in place before you need them. Establish relationships with these people before it's necessary for you to have to deal with an attorney and, and an estate. You can find trusted advisors by talking to your friends. How did things go for them when they used that estate attorney five years down the road? How did it look then? You can do your homework. I did not. I, I After following Bucky's death, I went to a meeting with the uh, the people who he banked with, and they brought in five different attorneys, estate attorneys, for me to interview. When I look back on it, I'm why, why was I doing that? I knew a lot of attorneys, I you know, but I just assumed that whoever I chose would have my best interests in heart, uh, and that's not the way it works. You know, I say this, and and I don't say it in a bitter way or in a in a way that isn't meant to scare anybody. But dying is a very big business. People make a lot of money in the business of death. I mean, think about it. Mm-hmm. When you are a new widow, you're not thinking about that. You don't expect people to take advantage of you. You don't, you know, I'm thinking everybody uh, cares about me and my sorrow and my grief. No, no, they don't. They're in business to make money, just like everybody else in business is. It's just that they're in the business of uh, dealing with people who've who've died. So I'm just saying, have you know, it's just like having a doctor. You want that doctor to know you and care about you, right? If you get sick, you want that person to care if you come home the next night, if you are feeling well the next day. You want to have a personal relationship with that person who's going to be very important to you if, in fact, you get sick. So my advice is get these people in place before you need them. You are, if you wait until somebody is sick and dying, you've waited too long. And you're probably going to make the same mistakes I made. So just make sure you have these people and you trust them and they know you and they care about you. And, you know, it's easy to do. But I I would, if I were to go back and do it again, I would rely on my friends to help me. I would say, who who should I? I mean, I ended up interviewing a lot of estate attorneys in the book. And I found those people because I said, who is the best person to talk to? And and my friends who were attorneys said, this is the best person to talk to. Well, why didn't I do that in the first place? Because <laughs> you were grieving. I mean, you were, well, your head I wasn't there. You know, I didn't know. I did yeah, not know. Right. So another thing that you mentioned in the book was um, the importance of like setting up a notebook or something with like passwords and accounts Mm. and all of that. And when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. Like, I don't even know half my own passwords. I don't know any of Jordan's, (laughs) my husband's or my kids for that matter, like any of them. And then I'm like, well, if I told him we were going to do that, he'd be like a notebook sitting in the office with all that information would be like... (laughs) not the safest thing either. So, but I was thinking about it and I do think it's like super important. I don't know if you want to speak to that at all. Well, it's the recommendation of, of, again, one of the experts who I interviewed and they, they called it a a binder with the important information. And, and, you know, I understand that you might not want your password. You don't want to give your passwords out or you don't want to give the the code to get into your cell phone. I, I get all that. 
put it in a safety deposit box. Just make sure that it's somewhere where somebody can access it if you don't come home tonight. Mm-hmm. One of the questions one of the experts said to me is that we should all ask ourselves, who knows what you know? And if no one else knows what you know, they're going to have issues if you don't come home because they're not going to have that information that they need. I mean, I had none of Bucky's uh, passwords. I had no way to get into his cell phone. All of the beautiful pictures that he took on our cruise, the last vacation we ever had together with my kids, all gone because I didn't know how to get into the phone. And, you know, you try four times and that locks the phone and then it's over. And, you know, one of the widows I talked to, her husband, she said, I I was trying to get into the uh, accounts. And she goes, one of the questions was, who was your best friend? She goes, I knew who his best friend was. But it wasn't the answer. It wasn't the answer to the to the question on on that particular website. And so she, you know, she ended up going to court, spending thousands and thousands of dollars to try and get the the code to his phone. And it's just unnecessary. It's just so unnecessary if we just plan and prepare. It seems like such a simple thing to do, doesn't it? Right? Like. I, I can't imagine spending thousands trying to get someone's no. password. It, it's hard to imagine how much money you end up spending. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it boggles your mind. And, you know, it's like my father. The day he died, we found an envelope on his desk, and it was an application for long-term health care. And in the envelope was a check for the first year of the insurance, but it never got mailed. And so he had a stroke. He was completely disabled. I mean, his his brain was completely gone. He ended up being in a assisted care facility for two years, which his estate paid for. So here was somebody who everything he worked for was spent taking care of him in a facility where he didn't know where he was or who he was. I don't think that's what he would have intended for his end of life. But because we didn't talk about it, we didn't prepare for it, we didn't deal with it, he didn't deal with it, um, that's that's what ended up happening. And I think it happens to a lot of families simply because we are so terrified of dealing with this issue of death and dying. And now a quick shout out to our sponsor, Organifi. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. I discovered Organifi about three years ago and fell in love with the gold chocolate blend, which I enjoy in the evenings. I love that it contains ashwagandha, which reduces stress and supports a healthy cortisol level. And it really gives me that fix when I want something chocolatey or sweet in the evening. And it's perfect and nice and calming before bed. And I'm really enjoying the Organifi green juice, which has a ton of superfoods in it. And it's so much easier than juicing. And it's also great if you struggle to get your greens in. Each Organifi blend is easy to use by simply mixing it with water. It's great on the go and there's no compromise in quality for taste. 
Organifi takes great pride in offering the best tasting superfood products on the market at a price less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high quality superfoods too by heading over to Organifi.com slash living well. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash living well and use our code living well for 20% off your entire order. No, I was going to say like Marnie with, with the passwords. I recently had these conversations with my husband and he, I, I can tell it's making him a little uncomfortable. He's like, well, don't you think I've, you know, planned some of this or I have some of the passwords? I'm like, but I don't know any of this and you pay all the bills. And so this is the catalyst for us, you know, sitting down and having that discussion and going through it. I mean, I'm to the point where I want to plan out my whole funeral now. I just, I know what I want as of right now, you know, and just like you said, not have your relatives have to deal with it when they're grieving. But there's something in the book you talk about an end of life doula, which I don't know that a lot of people have necessarily heard of. So can you explain that situation? I mean, we know what a doula is when you're giving birth, right? But this is on the, the end of your life. So how can they help with these really difficult life well, transitions? Well, my daughter, who's a millennial, right? When we told our my two girls that, that Bucky had uh, pancreatic cancer and we were going to go through treatment, chemotherapy at the Mayo Clinic here in Scottsdale. And she came out to visit us and she pulled me aside and she said, you know, mom, would you consider getting a death doula? And I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> I, I don't even know what you're talking about, Kate. I said, I, I, you know, no, no, he's not dying. What a death doula. I don't even know what death doula is. I'm like, this is a millennial mumbo jumbo deal here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> get out of my hair, um, go away. I, I'm not talking about any of this. And she kept saying, well, but I have somebody, I know somebody, she's a social worker. She's a psychologist. She goes, but mom, I know somebody that maybe could be helpful to you. And I'm like, no. So after Bucky died and, and we never discussed his death, we didn't discuss that that was going to happen or a possibility. We, we discussed that he was going to be sick and our life was not going to be the same, but he was going to still wake up the next day. Right. After he died, I said to my daughter, I want you to write me a letter. And I want you to explain to me why you suggested a death tour. And she wrote me the most beautiful letter. And she said, you know, mom, when we, when we, when I heard the news that Bucky was sick and had cancer, she said, of course, your first thought is to have hope that there'll be some kind of cure, that the chemotherapy will work, that he will live, you know, another 10 years. She said, but when I came and I visited you and I saw you too, she said, I, I said to myself, oh, they're fighting a war. They're not going to win. You know, you kill a thousand soldiers and 10,000 new ones show up the next day. And she said, I really thought a death doula could help you rather than fighting what's happening to you. Learn how to come to some sort of acceptance about what is happening to you. Maybe give you the opportunity for you and Bucky to have conversations that they could facilitate between you two so that he wouldn't think you're giving up and he, well, or that he wouldn't think I was giving up and that he wouldn't think he was scaring me. And we never had those conversations. I still don't know what to do with his ashes. I, I still didn't know if he wanted to be buried or cremated. I, we never had those conversations. And so as a result, 
I don't have a, any letter from him telling me what I meant to him. He didn't have any conversation with me telling him how much he meant to me. We just pretended it wasn't happening to us. And it was. And so now I talked to several death doulas. I talked to people who use death doulas. And it was, um, it's a beautiful experience. I wish that, you know, I, I could have had. Wow. I, I think that the idea of a death doula, which when I read about it, I was like, you know, I mean, it is similar to a birth doula, right? It's the same idea, but on the other end of life, I think that having someone facilitate that for, you know, the two parties involved, or maybe it's an entire family involved would be so helpful. And even just encouraging, you know, the person that, you know, maybe passing away soon or whatever to write some of those letters and to think about some of those things and to give the spouse permission to, you know, I'm not giving up on you. I'm just trying to accept and move forward with what's happening. Because exactly. I, I can see where that would be so hard. Like you want to fight, fight, fight till the till you can't fight anymore, right? You don't you don't want to give up ever. Right. And um and it's unrealistic. You know, I mean, we, and, and again, we live in this kind of culture. I mean, I can remember when we went to the oncologist and Bucky had a very, very serious cancer and diagnosis. But I remember the doctor saying to him, but I have a good feeling about this. And I'm like, and of course, that's what we wanted to hear. But it wasn't true. It wasn't true. And even doctors don't want to be honest with you. We had, it was interesting because Bucky had a blood clot, was in the hospital for a week. And we had this young doctor um, who was uh, doing his residency with the oncologist that was treating Bucky. And so Bucky was in the hospital for a week. And this young doctor who, as it turned out, was from Minnesota and was a big hockey fan. And Bucky, at the time he got seriously ill, was... He did big class action cases and he was working on uh, the NFL concussion cases. And so he and this young doctor became fast friends. And this young man stayed by Bucky's side that entire week. And he would pull me aside and try and talk to me about palliative care and hospice. And do you think this is something, Pat, that might be helpful for you guys right now? And I'm like, no, palliative care, hospice. No, that means you're dying. He's not dying, you know, and but he was trying and he was a millennial. So so maybe they've got some wisdom that we didn't have, the baby boomers didn't have. But he was trying to guide us into that direction. And we were just fiercely opposed to listening to it. And um, I, I just I, there are so many things I wish I could have a do over on. But again, that's why I wrote the book. So that other people don't have to yeah. um, have to have these regrets. And we talked, a, you've talked a lot about grief. And, you know, I think every time I'm sure a lot of people out there listening, you know, you hear of someone dying, whether it's someone close to you or just an acquaintance, we don't know how to interact with them, right? We don't, our society doesn't teach people how to interact with a grieving person. And what advice do you have, you know, from your learnings and interviewing all these people What's the best approach, you know, for someone that is grieving? What can we do to support them? Um, just pick up the phone and call. You know, I there was a gentleman who I, I 
actually, I mentioned in the book and, and thank him profusely, but he just called me every day. How are you doing? Do you need anything? What, what's going on in your life? You know, just, just making sure touch base and how's everything going? What can I do to help? What do you need? That's all you really need to do. You know, that's really all you need to do. Again, I, it goes back to our cultural issue with death and dying. I think some people, they don't, they're just like my dad. They don't want to talk about it because they're afraid it's going to somehow come on them. Well, guess what? We're going to all die at some point. It's going to happen to every single one of us. And I just, I guess if there's any message I could leave you with, it's deal with it. Just deal with it. Yeah. Have those tough conversations. You know, I was at a funeral recently and someone, one of the um, family members giving the eulogy gave this advice, you know, because everyone is, especially within a situation with a widow or someone with small children. And, um, you know, there's a lot of support leading up to the funeral. And then if they're sick and, you know, immediately after, but it was to put like a reminder in your calendar, maybe it's for your birthday or like six months out. And maybe it's once a month, you know, depending on how close you are to them and just reach out and call, pick up the phone, call, send a text message. But it was something actually I did. And I put a reminder in my calendar and on my birthday, which is coming up, actually, I'm going to, you know, reach out to these few people that I know have had loved ones pass away recently. And it's easy to get like, back into your life. And then you kind of forget about those individuals that you know are still grieving for a very long time after right. their loved one passes. Right. And it, it's difficult. I mean, uh, one of the widows I interviewed, she described it this way to me. She said, you know, Pat, in my, in my life, there's a, a chalkboard. And on the chalkboard, one day on Friday was a trip to Alaska, dinner with Joe and Johnny, visit the grandchildren, da-da-da, da-da-da, golf game, tennis match. And then after her husband died, I woke up and the chalkboard was wiped clean. There's nothing on it. That life that I was living is now gone. And I have to reinvent a new life for myself. And I found it when I talked, especially to a lot of the older women. And by the way, the average age of a widow is 55 years old. So don't think wow. of widows oh. as old ladies, because that's not the case. But I talk to a lot of older women, and it's especially difficult for older women to try and reinvent themselves. And again, I think it's a cultural thing, you know, and, and I watch my own friends do it. They surround widowers with support and casseroles and, oh, I've got the perfect woman for you, but they don't do it for older women. And I don't know if it's because they think women can take care of themselves or they can cook for themselves, which they can. Um, but nobody's bringing these older widows casseroles. They're bringing these older men, widowers casseroles, but they're not doing it for the women. And I, again, I think it's a cultural thing. I, I can remember coming back to Scottsdale shortly after Bucky died. And I, I went into the house and it's empty and I'm sad. So I called a girlfriend of mine thinking maybe we could, you know, have dinner. And she said, oh, I'm busy tonight, Pat. We're having Phil over. You know, his wife passed away and he's by himself and I'm cooking. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> hello. <Okay. laughs> I know. <laughs> like, like, well, OK, fine. Have a good time. <laughs> but um, 
again, I think it's a cultural thing. I really do. You know, they there's uh-huh. a big joke out there that the the widower ends up marrying the woman who brings the best casserole over. You know, and as funny <laughs> as that is, it's also for the most part pretty true. It also seems like there are a lot more women, older women that end up alone and the men just like get attached to very quickly, right? Like all yeah, the and, and you just want to find and, and companionship I, or whatever. Like you right. hear these stories about how the men, you know, are single for a month and then they're. Well, and I, I think, I think widows and widowers, you know, have, at least in, in my experience and in, in doing interviews with people, I have found this to be true. Men for the most part don't want to be by themselves. I, I, I have a, a friend here, a widower, and um, <laughs> I, I met him the other day for, um, you know, a drink in the afternoon. And he had a very nice sport coat on. And I said, oh, you look very nice. I said, that's a nice sport coat. He goes, well, you know, I got to look good, Pat. I'm selling. I'm selling. I'm looking for somebody. And I'm out selling. You know, I don't want to be by myself. And I want to find somebody. And he goes, I've got a trip to Portugal planned. And I got to find somebody to go on that trip with before September. So I'm selling. Well, oh, and, and a lot of the men, a lot of the widowers I meet, that that's their mindset. They're looking, they're selling. I don't find that so much with the widows. Yeah. 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 I, so you've given us so much to think about in this conversation. And I'm wondering, once a person has kind of taken care of all of this stuff and, you know, whether hopefully prior to death or, you know, after whatever, hopefully they've learned from your book. What is the biggest piece of advice you would give people to move forward just in life, you know, once you've lost somebody? Mm. Well, again, it's like I said, you have to reinvent yourself. You have to figure out a new life for yourself. And I think one of the best ways to do that is just every day, be open. You know, you don't, you know, somebody said to me, you don't know what's going to happen when you take that walk. You don't know what's going to happen when you go to that conference. You don't know what's going to happen when you take that trip. Just be open to experiences. I mean, I, I think especially when you're grieving, you tend to just, at least for me, I was just like more comfortable just being alone and being by myself. And but but that's not that's not actually the best way to deal with it. I think the best way to deal with it is just be open to experiences, be ready to push yourself to go do things that you don't think you want to do. But maybe if you do it, you find out you actually did want to do that. Mm-hmm. You you just have to be open to realizing, and this is really difficult because when I lost Bucky and when people suffered this kind of loss. You don't want to recognize that this is your new life. It's like, this can't be happening to me. I mean, I never expected to be a widow. I, I, mean, I remember Googling the root word of widow, and it means empty. I didn't want to be empty, but that's what it is. And so you have to fill up that empty space with new people, new experiences, and, and open yourself up to life again. I've been thinking... <laughs> seriously about writing another book. And this is not anything I ever wanted to do, but I'm, I'm going to write, I hope I'm going to write a book about how to, how do we live again, you know, and talk to people mm-hmm. who've figured it out, mm-hmm. who've been successful in moving on from all kinds of different losses, not just the loss of a spouse, but, 
you know, the, the loss of, of a child or, or all kinds of, you know, things that you face in life that are difficult and finding ways to move on from it and, and be successful. I think that would be a very valuable book. Yes. Well, Um, nobody has, nobody has these answers, at least that I have found yet, (laughs) but I'm (laughs) hoping to find somebody or other people who just can share experiences just like they did in my book that have helped other people figure out ways to deal with this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very comforting for people when they're going through something to be able to read a book like you wrote and hear all the different stories. And I think in your your sequel, if you will, the next book that you that you will write, a lot of people will find comfort in that as well. That's the goal. Yeah. So, you know, we love just leaving our listeners, regardless of where they are, whether they've been through this experience or not, with some really practical, you know, tips or strategies that you have. And maybe for those that don't even have death on their mind or they're younger, or they're still in that belief that we're not all going to leave this earth at some point. What are some just simple tips that someone can do today to prepare? Obviously reading your book is wonderful, but if you could like pick one or two from there that they can start to prepare themselves. Well, I guess if I learned anything, it's that there is a circle of life. and you know, it's, it's easy for us to get caught up in, in all of the things that are, are the things that we want and we like. It's very difficult to deal with the things that we don't like and we don't want. And if I learned anything, it's that you got to prepare for, for both of those bookends, you know, and everything in between. And I think the more that you deal with it, the more you plan for it, the more you, the more you communicate, talk about it with your loved ones, the better off you're going to be in the long run. You know, the guy I used, one of the guys I used to work with, Don Shelby, he and I co-anchored on WCCO for years. And Don told me, he goes, you know, Pat, I started writing my intention letter after I read your book. And he said, I'm up to 300 pages. <laughs> and he goes, and I'm still going. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. you know, I mean, but that's beautiful. I mean, that's beautiful yeah. because he's going yes. to leave his children and grandchildren with a great legacy. And, and that's a wonderful thing to do for your family. It's a wonderful thing to do for your family. Leave them with, with who you are, what you wanted, how you lived. It's just a beautiful thing to do. So rather than pretend it's never going to happen, prepare for it and leave your family with a beautiful gift. Mm. Oh, I love that. And I actually that's- think, you know, you could write like, you know, I could write an intention letter tomorrow and then I could review it in five years or whatever, because I feel like yeah. those intentions may change over time. But at oh, and least they do. you have and, like a and starting they do. And point. You, you, should update, right? you should update these things all the time. And, and here's the, I'll leave you this with this one thought, because people say, well, you know, it's, there are these, all these statistics out there. 85% of people think that a will and a trust is important. 11% don't know where the will of the trust is located, even if they do one. You know, I mean, my advice would be this, because it's, these are difficult things to do. Writing an intention letter is a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, deciding that you're going to do a trust or a will is a difficult thing to do, especially if you're young. My advice would be pick a date and pick a time. Put it on your calendar. Put it on your iPhone. This is the day and this is the time I'm going to sit down and start that intention letter. This is the day I'm going to call and make that appointment with the estate attorney. Put it on your calendar, make it important, 
and do it and just do it. Hmm. I think that's, that's great. great advice. Yeah. Yes. I'm for sure doing that. I know me too. And I'm going to make Jordan do it as well. The <laughs> intention letter. <laughs> so, um, Pat, where is the best place for people to buy your book before all is said and done? Um, it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. You know, it's it's basically available anywhere. If you buy it on Amazon, make sure you buy the paperback version. That's my version. Okay. Um, don't buy the hardcover. Okay. <laughs> I learned a lot about publishing a book too. So, <laughs> but that's not my book. That's somebody else selling my book, but it's not me selling it. So buy the oh, paperback. Wow. Oh. Yeah, I know it's. It's very strange. I, I didn't know anything about publishing, but I, I now do. I now have learned a lot. <laughs> um, so buy the paperback on Amazon. That, that is a great place to, to start. But I, I know you can buy it at Barnes & Noble and other bookstores. I think they have to order it for you, though. You can get it in a, you know, a day or so on Amazon. Okay. And we'll link that all up in the show notes as well. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I really appreciate you helping me get the word out. So thanks to both of you. Yeah, this is so, so important. It's not like, it's probably not the book that people would initially want to receive, you know, if you were to give it to someone, but it's once they go through this, I can imagine that they're very grateful to have this resource. So yeah, well, Pat, this has just been such a, you know, a really deep moving and powerful conversation, bringing this topic to light and hopefully encouraging more communication amongst families. And we love ending the conversation with asking all of our guests, what does the art of living well mean to you? Um, getting up with enthusiasm every morning and looking forward to whatever the day is going to bring me. You know, I spent a couple of years not being able to do that. And um, I'm coming out of that fog and I'm appreciating every beautiful day the sun comes up. Oh, that's beautiful. And so important to just be present and where you are right now, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for chatting with us today. We really appreciate it. We appreciate everything that you shared and we wish you a beautiful day. And thank you. And and the same to both of you. I appreciate it very much as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Art of Living Well podcast. We are so grateful that you joined us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else you think may benefit from this information. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and tag the Art of Living Well podcast on social media. If you want more inspiration in between episodes, you can find us on social media at the Art of Living underscore well on Instagram and Facebook where we will share snippets from our daily lives and our journey to living well.